I had a thought this morning that I had missed Brothers Meeting, and then I had a further thought, everyone missed Brothers Meeting. I thought I'd play a joke and say Brothers Meeting was lonely, and someone reminded me it's actually next Saturday. So, Next Saturday at Patton's, we lost Sean, it would seem. So next Saturday at Sean's at 6, be Brothers Meeting. Are you trying to say something? All right. Nativity or incarnation? That's the question of the hour. The time of year um, that we are in right now, the specific day, right? Uh, what is commonly referred to as Christmas Day. And I don't know what to tell you about all of it. Um, Everyone, a lot of people have strong opinions on uh, Christmas and its meaning and so on. Um, And what I hope for us to do is to look at... uh, as much as possible, a biblical, a biblical approach. Today is a, a, the day, the 25th of December, that the uh, Roman Catholic uh, Church has designated as the day of the year on which Christ was born. And uh, I didn't, um, didn't get through... All the notes I have on the subject, and of course, online things are disconnected, at least uh, where we live, so I didn't look further into that. There is a dispute between the Orthodox Church, which I think is about 12 days apart. I think January 6th or something is the day they hold as Christmas. And there are, um, there are various theories uh, or hypotheses as to how they came fixed on the day of December 25th. And I can't settle it for everybody. Um, I think there are four main ones. One of them, and this would be a a common Protestant view, although not so much now, it used to be more common, was that, I think it's Bromelia. I don't think Saturnalia, I think Bromelia. In any case, one of the pagan festivals was on the 25th of December. Historically, you might look back and think it was the 23rd, but the Julian calendar, the Roman Emperor Julius, was two days off, two or three, so that the winter equinox fell on the 25th of December. Later, I think about the 3rd century, the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius declared, revived a cult on the 25th of December, the, the unconquered sun. And Depending on their biases, historians assert that he did it to spite the Christians who were celebrating the birth of Christ on that day. I don't believe there's really any evidence for that, but that is an assertion. Others, would be more Protestant, say that the Roman Catholic Church hijacked and and Christianized that pagan holiday. And historians go based on their biases. So that's one theory, is that it was a hijack 
of a pagan holiday. Um, another theory is that it has been calculated based on what people believe to be the timing of uh, Zachariah the priest in his priestly ministry. Solomon, hmm, David gave instruction, I think, and it was implemented under Solomon, I, f- I do forget now, but he established the priesthood into 24 courses, uh, each course lasting a week. And each set of priests would minister in the temple sacrifices um, twice in a year, two weeks. One week, you run 24 courses, and then another week, that's 48 weeks. However, there were times when all the priests were there for the high holy days, Passover, um, Pentecost, and so on, and that would account for the full calendar year. And so if you look at the course of Abiah, which is known, I think it's about the 7th or 8th, I forget now, and assume which of those two, because they're six months apart, and then you work out when Zacharias was in the temple, and therefore when Elizabeth would conceive, and then six months later, Mary conceived. And then nine months later, she would born. You would land with perfect certainty on the 25th of December. Which I just think there's too many variables to have any certain claim. I mean, was she late or early? Like, there's so much. And how long after Zacharias was finished did he go to home and... And which course was it? Because they're six months apart. But there are those who claim with dogmatic certainty that it was the 25th of December based on those calculations. Um, uh, So that's yet another hypothesis. And a fourth is that there is a Jewish um, tradition or belief that a prophet dies on the day in which he was conceived. And so they work the conception um, of Christ on the day of his crucifixion, which is established, and then work nine months from that to come up with the 25th of December. So those are some hypotheses as to how they come up with the date. One thing's for sure, they didn't come up with it from just a plain reading of Scripture, which we do have for the day of the resurrection. And those are things that are important. So that's the day. The facts are, however, that we've got, and I, I, I don't remember whether it's the 6th or the 7th of January for the Orthodox. The, you understand that the Catholic Church split into two, the Byzantine um, uh, Empire, I think, yeah, East and West they split into. And so you've got the Roman Catholic clergy in one and you've got the orthodox you know, then they do have some differences um, I forget what they call their equivalent of the pope and they have different they, they uh, disagree on the calendar but they're very very similar in structure and in function they have their priesthood and so on I think the orthodox priests are allowed to marry but I don't remember uh, Anglican priests are and you have these uh, tradition, what they call the historical um, and traditional churches For the greater part of, well, for hundreds of years in any case, Protestants and uh, and Anabaptists 
would have considered the Roman Catholic Church to be the um, beast as set forth in the book of the Revelation. And we would um, have rejected so much of what they taught and established, uh, including the, the um, great number of feast days and so on. Very, very hybridized uh, religion because they borrow from the Old Testament where you have priestly vestments and incense. If you've never grown up uh, in a Catholic church, you've never been in a Catholic church, you've missed a bit of a spectacle. Um, the priests have their very um, you know, elaborate garments. The, uh, you know, and then the, the higher-ups, they have these big uh, mitres, kind of in the shape of a fish head, um, on tops of their heads. Uh, or you could argue that it's got this cathedral shape. In any case, but they have incense. They've got these chains and these little incense, and they kind of do their incense thing. And very Old Testament ceremonial. And then a lot of the symbol, symbols that they have, they've borrowed from pagan religions, right? They have a, a cross in the shape of an ankh, which is an Egyptian uh, system. They're, some of their names, pagan and idolatrous. I remember a, a church building in uh, Mississauga, Mary, Queen of Heaven. Awful. When this prophet said specifically, you shall not worship the Queen of Heaven. What a name to pick. The symbolism of, of Mary with you know, the moon beneath her feet and so on and a babe. And these are long established pagan symbols um, that it appears Roman Catholic institution um, absorbed and we have this very public institution they claim to be the oldest historical unbroken line apostolic succession right to the apostle Peter they claim as the first pope and historically they do have a point um, if you look at the bishops and so on that were that succeeded in the various congregations the question that they don't address is did that Historical church depart, as Paul wrote, there shall come an apostasy. Strangely, Western Christians think that date is in the future. That date is centuries old, many centuries. The great falling away, that happened long ago. Um, I don't know why we think it's in the future. Church history attests to the fact that there came a great falling away and a departure from the faith. They have not addressed the great riches and wealth and jewels and relics. All of those things that are not consistent in any way with the teachings of Christ. And it would appear then that you have an outward show professing to be the kingdom of God that is really uh, antithetical to it. And it is from that historical body that we get the authority for the day December 25th as the date of Christ's birth and the celebration of it. Just think, there's no shops open, right, today? It's a holiday. Places get two weeks off, uh, quite common for schools and so on to be closed. It's a holiday. And I don't know what to tell you about it, really. The fact that the entire world, for hundreds of years, acknowledged the day of Christ's birth and the day of his resurrection. Through the calendar system, 
um, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Um, all of this is um, known in the world through the Roman Catholic Church. And how much of it is in the providence of God and how much of it is the abominable uh, corruptions and counterfeits and falsehoods, I cannot say with certainty, although I have my opinions on some we don't go to church to share or hear opinions. Is that right? We want the word of God. And so I don't want to try and comment and speculate on, on things of that nature. When we look at uh, the coming into the world of Christ. It's interesting. Um, two very, very learned and scholarly um, Christian theologians and Bible commentators of hundreds of years ago. Um, one by the name of Adam Clark, who was a, a Wesleyan minister and Bible commentator and expositor. And another by the name of Alfred, I think it's Alfred or is it Albert, Edersheim, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Is it Alfred or Albert? Alfred? Alfred? I've got that right. Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, a, a, a learned Jewish man who became a Christian. And Edersheim is quite interesting, but he says that all of the evidence, uh, there, there is no historical basis to reject December 25th as the birth of Christ. He stands with it, Jewish man. And Adam Clark says there's absolutely not a shred of evidence to support the 25th of December, and it is clearly wrong. And it's come from Bromelia, and Christ wouldn't have, the sheep wouldn't have been. It's just very interesting. These scholarly folks have their two completely different opinions. And they, they're very learned, very well read. Um, in, the day, in those days, scholars were scholars. A man like Adam Clark, when he refers to other Bible versions... It's not like our ignorant generation today where we think of the NIV and the NASB and all of that. In those days, a version meant in a different language. So the other versions would be the Dutch, the Spanish, the French, the Italian, the Syrian. And they would read all the other versions as well as the Greek text and their English Bible. That was what other versions meant to them. And they were fluent. They could read them all. They were well studied in languages. Lancelot Andrews, who was the overseer of the committee that translated the King James Bible, was so famous for fluency in so many different languages that he had a reputation that he could have been the interpreter at the Tower of Babel and kept everybody communicating. That's when scholars were scholars. Alfred Edersheim, again, so knowledgeable in his Jewish uh, history. Adam Clark, these men, they read the Talmud. Well, they did. He's dead now. He's not reading that. He's worshipping Christ. <laughs> and so, interesting that with all of their education, they come to completely opposite conclusions. And for sure, I'm not going to settle that dispute. Um, uh, who, comparatively, would be very ignorant. What I do want us to look at, though, brethren, is the Word of God. The Word of God. Let's start there, shall we, and look at what was happening, why, what should be our focus. And then, when we have settled all of those things from the scriptures, we could look at what to do in the world such as it is with respect to a day such as today.
Let's start at the beginning, shall we, in Genesis chapter 3. We're looking at two things. Well, we're going to look in Scripture at one thing. Right now, the world is focused on at least, well, many parts of the world. The nativity, right? The nativity is an event about the birth, the baby Jesus. And there are so many sentimental, warm, fuzzy feelings that center around the baby Jesus. And we've got these pictures, or these little images, you know, of a, of a stable and a crash. We've got donkeys and straw and little Mary. Some of us used to have, not me, but some people that we love, you know, they'd have the wise men at that part of the room and gradually moving them forward and so on. Did you know anybody like that, brother? And, uh, you know, creches, you know, see crash scenes out on lawns here and there. Um, and, you know, it's uh, the babe of Bethlehem, right? Um, oh, all these fuzzy Christmas carols and you just feel like snuggling up by a fire and, and eggnog and, oh, it's such a special soulish family happy time, right? So a lot of people think the nativity and oh and it's so precious and oh so sweet and the big. And the problem with it is it's got a very wrong focus. Um, not wickedness. We have and we haven't gone into the drunkenness and the revelry and the debauchery and then the domestic fights that develop because people have been excessive in drinking. We're not talking about those things. Yet we can address them. We're talking about the really feel-good experience of Christmas. But it centers around the nativity, the baby, the birth, and the baby, and all of the emotion, you know, and and the the romantic fact of this little baby and the straw, and you got the dog. That's questionable, by the way, but anyway, uh, as to what they mean. It says he was laid in a manger. It doesn't say he was in a barn. It was common for Jewish people at that time to rent out the upper apartment in their home. It was common for the poor of such to keep their animals in the mudroom, the entrance. And if you kept your animal in your house, you'd have a manger. And so no room in the inn may have meant the apartment was busy and they had to stay in the front room and there was nowhere to put the baby. It could have been in the house as opposed to in these big red, you know, um, I don't know what kind of hip, hip barns or something that we have today. It was almost certainly not something like that. But never mind. We, you know, let's not get history and facts um, in the way of our nice feel-good experience. And we, we've got this you know, romantic little baby there and angels all around. And we've kind of morphed all of the histories together. We've got the wise men. It says they were in the house. So that's sometime later. Uh, Herod slew all the babies, two years old and younger, so that could be about a year and a day. The, the Jewish, um, the biblical reckoning of time just means anywhere after a year. But still, that's still a long time. It wouldn't have been there. So the wise men come later, but we've got them there at the crash scene. We've got the donkeys. We've got everything. And it just all so feel good. The nativity. That's the world. But what does the Bible say? <clears throat> Well, you know, Matthew and Luke, you know, and Christmas story. All right, well, we'll we'll look at it. We'll look at it. 
<clears throat> but let's look at the whole Bible, shall we? And let's start at the beginning, where the coming of Christ into the world was foretold in Genesis chapter 3. Man has sinned and Satan is being judged. I know it talks about the serpent and so on and I'm not really interested in the physical mechanics of what went on. People assume way too much when they read the Bibles. What kind of communication was going on there? Was it audible? Just jump far ahead. 4,000 years from this date to Christ being tempted in the wilderness. And Satan came to him. Does it say Satan appeared to him? No. Satan's a spirit. Did he have a bodily form? You could assume that. You could just more likely assume not. Did he speak audibly? And does he need to? So what happened here in the garden in the specifics is completely irrelevant. What is relevant is that Satan was there tempting man. And he was successful in that temptation and God's judgment is pronounced upon him. I will put, verse 15, I will put enmity, God speaking to the devil. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And here seed referred to by God in the singular. It. Not they. And we'll look at the plural in a little bit. It shall bruise thy head. Thou shalt bruise his heel. Clearly there is a prophecy by God to address to the serpent. But spoken in the presence of Adam and Eve. And they would have heard this. And there was a promise then to fallen man right at his fall. That God was going to bring forth from the woman one who would crush Satan's head. This is how it began. There was going to come into the world through humanity. The mother of all living. Woman is going to bring forth a child that is going to crush Satan's head. Now I ask you this. The term there. And we're going to trace this thought. What's the emphasis? Thy seed. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. That word seed implies and carries the descendancy, offspring. It does not focus on infancy. I'm going to put enmity between thy seed and her seed. Is not a picture of a fight in a crib. It's not like um, Jacob and Esau in the womb. It's simply lineage that's in, in, in uh, focus there, not infancy. And um, this is the beginning of the uh, uh, mention of a Savior. Let's go ahead. Let's move ahead. We're still in Genesis. Genesis chapter 22. And Abraham offers up Isaac. 
And, uh, and God was well pleased with his faith. In verse 12, it said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thine only son from me. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven. Verse 18, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. That's to Abraham. Verse chapter 26, God speaking to Isaac. Sojourn in this land, verse 3, and I will be with thee and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries. Verse 4, and I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give unto thy seed all these countries. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice. Now this is looking multiplied, right? Thy seed. This is a nation. It's a dual function word. Paul will take it up in, uh, in Galatians, I believe. He saith not to thy seeds as of many, but to thy seed as of one, which is Christ. However, it's not an individual so much as a lineage. It's a type. In the law, Moses will write, Thou shalt not sow thy field with diverse kinds of seeds. The plural would be a plurality of kind. And here... The singular is a single kind and then it will focus ultimately in in its intention on a single person. And so it functions as both uh, singular and plural. Singular kind, including the entire nation, focusing on one person. Chapter 28. Now we're with Jacob. God speaking to Jacob. God appears to Jacob in a dream. And verse 14, he says, Thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth. See, this is a plural. But Paul will note that it's one kind of seed. And that seed is Christ. Thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God confirmed this three times to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. What had been spoken to Eve. Now Eve (laughs) can get things right and still get some things wrong. From the earliest time, we're back in Genesis chapter 4 now. From the earliest times then, men and women have looked for a savior. Humanity has looked for a savior. And right there, knowing, having overheard this, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And hinted at that is, this is the seed that's going to crush the serpent's head. 
What a grief it must have been to discover that this was the seed of the serpent. Cain, of that wicked one, (laughs) slew his brother. But what it does show us is that the expectation was there from Adam and Eve's time. That there would come forth a seed. God was going to give this woman's seed. One that would crush the serpent's head. And so when he takes it up with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Let's trace the history of of, um, humanity as it relates to the people of God. God's focused on the lineage of Christ. And he speaks to the woman. Indirectly telling Satan. His, it, the seed. He shall crush thy head. And Abraham is chosen. Moses, Joshua, Joshua, nearing the end of his life. Says to the people of Israel. Your fathers served idols on the other side of the flood. Right? And he said, now you put away your idols and serve the Lord. In the midst of the idolatry that had developed, when opportunistic men decided that rather than have worship to the true God, which predates idolatry, predates many gods, men developed this idolatrous system so that they could have control. Satan did it, inspiring them so they could ha- he could have the worship of, of men and deflect worship of men from the true God. And God calls Abraham out of the midst of this. I think Jewish Midrash has it that he destroyed the idols in his father's house. And they go on pilgrimage. And God says to Abraham, In thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You see, the, the hope, Abraham would have known this. I can recall correctly, I could be wrong. <clears throat> I think Abraham lived at the time of Noah. Noah had not yet died and Abraham was alive. I think that's right. I could be mistaken. Certainly his father did. <clears throat> if I'm not mistaken, I think Noah Noah lived during the lifetime of Adam. I could be wrong on that as well. But I think so. Been a while since I checked those things. There's a lineage. The point being is that these these expectations were passed down, and people um, people had this hope. The children of God, those that longed for righteousness and loved righteousness, were looking for the one that would arise and end the works of Satan. That expectation. <laughs> um, was corrupted in much of humanity. And in the same way that their idols developed, so their various hero worship and myths developed that have a biblical basis, that have a truth of God, the various gods and heroes, you know, and the good and evil. You can won't take our time to look at Greek mythology and Roman and, and so on. Round the world, these myths of a savior that would come and that would destroy the wicked one. It's there. Uh, universal, and all coming from this common human expectation that there will arise out of humanity one that will deliver us from evil. It's there, it's a human expectation. God focuses on Abraham, takes this one man, reveals himself to him and promises 
It's going to be through thy seed. So we've got a bit of a funnel, right? Eve, the mother of all living, that opens it up for everybody. Any race, any family, any person. But God now making this covenant with Abraham. And confirming it with Isaac and Jacob. Threefold covenant, threefold statement in, God, in the word of God is immutable. It cannot be undone. And you see that. That was what was so horrible for Peter about his denial of Christ. Something that was confirmed three times cannot be undone. Even the Muslims have, have taken this up. And that is, I believe, at least among one major sect, uh, how a man divorces his wife. He repeats to her three times, I divorce you. And the third time, that's it. They're divorced. Immutable. Can't be undone. It's biblical language. There's confirmed. So the seed is coming now through Jacob, through Israel. That excludes every other people. There's the seed lying. In the history of the Jewish people, they, they go into, um, into captivity in Egypt. They go down to Egypt and they become captives rather. And then they're delivered by Moses. <clears throat> Moses was their first king. Moses was uh, king in Jeshurun, uh, he writes. Um, but he does not speak much of the coming of Messiah. Messiah the king. Balaam does in Numbers 24. And by the way, we're not going to look at every messianic prophecy, as enriching as that might be. We're focusing on the seed and the king, really, coming through the ages. <clears throat> Numbers 24, verse 15. Balaam, the son of Beor, said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said... He hath said, which heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty, falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. I shall see him, the Almighty, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies. And Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion. And shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. In human terms that was David. But beyond David, Messiah the king. David did put Edom to the sword. Uh, and, and Moab, sorry, in particular. We won't look at that now. Balaam. This soothsayer of the east. This prophet with the gift of God and the heart of a covetous devil. Some speculate that the wise men to, of whom we will look in Matthew. Um, that the wise men. Magi, right? Magicians. Like astrologers and so on. Daniel was one of the wise men. The king would have his entourage of uh, counselors who were... Learned in all knowable human knowledge. They would be studied in history. In the various crafts and cunning arts and magical arts. That were known throughout the world of different nations. 
They would know the theology of various religions. They would know the, the uh, constellations and the movements thereof. They would be studied in all of the latest discoveries in mathematics, geometry, physics. They were the wise men. Knowledge, the, the reservoirs of knowledge in the kingdom. And the king would surround himself with these men so that he could make decisions based on the best knowledge in the world. Wise men. Daniel was one of them. Smart people, king would surround himself with, and they, they were in the and so wise men came from the east. It's a specific; it's not just some smart blokes. I thought, hmm, I figured this out, you know. No, these would have been um, of the the high courtiers of uh, of uh, uh, whether Babylonian or Persian or whatever um, king. And some speculate or assume that it came from this passage, this prophecy by Balaam, and that that was kept alive. And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, I could be completely wrong. Maybe they are right. But for 12, 1300 years, these people who have nothing to do with the people of God are keeping alive this knowledge based on a prophecy by Balaam. I don't think so. Perhaps it's so, but I really don't think so. I would think rather that Daniel himself would have shared some of that knowledge. And that would have been part of the curriculum, if you will, of the various wise men who would have been astronomers and astrologers. Knowing that the heavenly bodies were given for signs, a common thing. One man claims to have uh, through the modern technology and the, the software that can track all of the constellation movements and that can now retroactively show you what the heavens would have looked like from any vantage point on earth on any day of the year based on what we have observed and recorded in the last half many years and has traced it such that he can tell you on December 25th where the star was and it was a planet and the path it made. All very interesting. I can't comment on those things. <clears throat> but Balaam, Balaam was given this prophet, and the people there would have known that out of this nation of Israel would come forth a savior. Moses doesn't, um, as the king, Moses doesn't say much. Uh, he doesn't talk much about the coming of Christ. I think, uh, I think in chapter 18, Moses tells him this, that a prophet, there it is, chapter 18 and verse 18 of Deuteronomy, I will raise up a prophet from among thy brethren like unto thee, will put my words in his mouth. And the Jews, uh, many of them did not recognize that prophet as the same as Messiah, which is why they asked John the Baptist, are you the Messiah? Are you Elias? Are you that prophet? <clears throat> They didn't recognize it. Moses doesn't tell us about Messiah the King. He records for us in Genesis the seed that was promised to Eve. The seed that was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He records Balaam's prophecy. And there we're left. Joshua leads the the, uh, people of God into the promised land. And they spend their time fighting to try and subdue the land. And they compromise partway through. And they don't attain full possession. 
And they go back to idolatry. And then they are fought against by the... Um, uh, and overcome and oppressed by the previous inhabitants whom they allowed to remain. And that time through the history of the judges was a time of back and forth. And the prophetic word that was given to them was really a reproof to their idolatry. That was as far as it went. And a call to serve God. He, he raised up saviors. They would be oppressed. They'd cry to the Lord. He'd give them a, a savior. And they had many. They, I mean, some, you know, even Shamgar. They had Barak and, and Ehud and uh, Gideon, Samson, who would give them a temporary relief. But this back and forth where they were the underdog in the inheritance of God. And they, the work of the prophets was to get them to a place where they would really possess the land. And that was it. So there, was, there was not any prophetic utterance that we're aware of that's recorded for us in Scripture. That would point us to this seed, this coming one, who would crush Satan's head. And then the, the, the prophets write, you know, we're, we're given this, the prehistory of Ruth. It's Moabitus. And then Jesse is born, the book of Ruth. And then Jesse's sons. Samuel the prophet there through Hannah. We've got this scene, the stage being set. The people, Moses had warned them, the people demanding a king. Samuel grieved and he, he appoints Saul as king. Who had a good start and a terrible finish. And there's no mention then of this seed of the woman as the nation is being established. But the foundation gets shifted as Saul goes off the rails and becomes more concerned with his glory than with God's. Bless me now in front of the people after he had disobeyed. And God chooses David, the least in his father's household. Takes him from following the sheep and we, are trace, we trace David's life of struggle, of affliction, of being um, persecuted by Saul, mistreated, the underdog. Most of the people of God with Saul, a few ragtags with David, refugees of all sorts, in debt or in any distress. And there's a reviving of this hope. <clears throat> Remember Peter uh, on the day of Pentecost said, and from Samuel and all the prophets that have spoken have foretold of these days. Samuel, we're not, we don't read of any words from Samuel's lips. But in the second book attributed to him, he of course wrote 1 Samuel. I don't know how they decide the authorship for 2 Samuel. Samuel's death is recorded in 1 Samuel 25, I believe. In 2 Samuel... Chapter 7. David, it came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies. Here we are. The establishment of the kingdom. Finally, they've possessed the land. Some dispute whether they fully possessed the borders under David. I've heard that objected against. I've heard others say that under David, they fully possessed the boundaries that were promised. 
David being a type of Christ, a forerunner to Messiah. So much of David's life and Christ's life are overlaid. You can see it in the Psalms in particular. In fact, the Lord Jesus quoted or referenced the deed of David's as authorization for what he himself would do or his disciples. And we see then that this, um, this is renewed now that the kingdom is established and at rest. David there, he's sitting in his house, <clears throat> said to Nathan, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And we know the story. Nathan says, Do all that's in thine heart, God is with thee. And then before Nathan's out of the place, God says, You go back and tell David. And uh, the Lord recounts everything he's done for David. And he finishes in verse 12. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name. That was a context David wanted to build a house for God. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. We've gone from the seed of Eve, the mother of all living. Focus now to the seed of Abraham, the father of us all by faith. To Isaac, to Jacob, Israel, the nation of the Jews. Funnel down, focus still now to the house of David. This is where the seed that will crush the serpent's head is coming. We're tracing Something here, And we're going to look at the scripture and see if the scripture is pointing us to a nativity or to something far greater. Incarnation. Words have meanings. Jesus called the word of God. It's a great comfort to those of us that love language and words. Incarnation. Carne. Flesh. Chili con carne. Peppers with meat, right? Con is with carnes, flesh, flesh. Sorry, did I butcher your language? Chilies, peppers, incarnation. The word was made flesh. We're getting ahead of ourselves. <clears throat> What's, what are the scriptures pointing us to? Thy seed. Now, we might immediately think Solomon. But it becomes clear that it wasn't Solomon. I will not take my mercy from him as I took it from Saul. God stirred up adversaries against Solomon. The kingdom was split. And we could argue, well, Saul's seed were all wiped out and Solomon's weren't. We could say that. And that would therefore make it true. Although I don't know where you'd find a king of the Jews today. either the kingdom of Christ or this prophecy failed. The seed is revived and 
here as clear as anything. Remember Balaam's, which Moses recorded, a star, a scepter. Wisdom, the star. Authority and might, the scepter. Scepter is a king's rule. Stars are lights. They give uh, a representative of understanding. But here now the seed focuses on a kingdom. The kingdom of Messiah. And we have this prophecy by Samuel. The next scripture writing prophet we have is Jonah. And although he writes of Christ, he doesn't write of the seed and of the king. He writes of, through his own life, the death and resurrection of Messiah, which, which was so hidden that even this clever and studied, insightful rabbis didn't perceive it. The Lord Jesus directed them to it. Jonah is considered to be historically the first of the prophets. Uh, coming, um, oh, let me look in Matthew here, Uzziah's father. Um, I think it's like 1 Kings 15 or something where where we read of Jonah. Uh, Abiah, Asa, Josaphat, Joram. I think, yeah, Joram begat Uzziah. I think it's in King Joram's day. Um, where Jonah's prophesying. And the kingdom has started to deteriorate, right? Solomon's days were the glory days. He built the house for the Lord. He instituted the worship. You had the 24 courses set up. You had all the singers. You had all of that set up. Glorious temple worship. And then the prayer of dedication and the glory of the Lord filled the house. But Solomon loved many strange women. And his wives turned away his heart. And he built temples to their idols. And the Lord reproved him for it. And told him he would take the kingdom. He let Solomon see it in his lifetime. A united kingdom. But he stirred up adversaries against Solomon. And with the death of Solomon. His son Rehoboam. Obviously neglected by a man. Who had a thousand women to entertain. 700 wives and 300 concubines ridiculous thing. No doubt many of them political. He may never have had anything to do with them. Living there in the house of women. But his son Rehoboam, the heir, obviously neglected. And even if Solomon was giving him the attention, how could you raise a godly son when you've been turned away from the Lord yourself? Rehoboam forsook the counsel of his, the old men from his father's days and became more oppressive. And the kingdom was split. And yet there were those that stayed with, um, with Judah, the tribe of Benjamin. And you had Abiah. Abiah didn't last long as a king. Three years and a bit, I think. And um, a godless man in, in some ways. He, he sinned. But he also cried out to the Lord in battle. He sinned like his dad. He had... Um, about three dozen women to his credit as well, and, and about that many children. Some, I mean, my numbers are way off, but it was a lot. You see the consistent line, David loved many wives, Solomon more, and even his offspring were doing the same. Family sin continues. 
But the kingdom is still there. You had this blip, Rehoboam, um, Abiah, the split. Then we had Asa. Asa was a righteous king, as was Jehoshaphat. And then at the time of Joram, you have um, Jonah prophesying. And, jo- and Joram's son now is Uzziah. Uzziah in Matthew. Uzziah the king. And the prophets here, now as the kingdom, is going through its, its throes. Solomon, that was a glory day. Solomon degenerated. The kingdom split. And now you've got the two kingdoms developing. And God starts the prophets again on Messiah is coming. The king is coming. And the prophets begin to speak of this. If Jonah was the the first of the prophets, um, then the second of the scripture writing prophets, I do mix them up, Hosea. Hosea is our second. We're building... uh, to a point here by walking through the scriptures. <clears throat> Where is it? Hmm. No, I've lost this passage now. In Hosea chapter 1, he prophesies in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now this is the same for Amos and Isaiah. However, uh, if you can see in Isaiah's prophecy, he begins in the end of Uzziah's reign. And so technically, Hosea and them are, are before. There was a passage here I'd wanted in Hosea. I can't, uh, I can't put my eye on it now. Oh dear, well, we'll have to. Yeah, in the interest of time, I'm not going to to spend the time looking at it. I do apologize, just drawn a blank with that. Look at Amos, shall we? Amos is very similar in time. In the days of Uzziah, Jeroboam, Joash, two years before the earthquake. So Hosea, Amos, and Isaiah are very similar in time. And um, perhaps historians might dispute just which one was first. Clearly, Amos and Hosea are before Isaiah, though. There's one in Amos as well. Right here, he's talking about the transgressions of Edom in chapter 1, transgressions of Moab. He confirms his love to Israel in chapter 3. He warns them in chapter 5. To not seek unto Bethel and Gilgal, places that had become idolatrous. 
And you can see um, in chapter 6, they drink wine in bowls, anoint themselves with the chief ointments, right? How they're living in ease. They chant to the sound of the viol and invent themselves instruments of music like David. A people, they lie in beds of ivory. Idolatrous people. The kingdom is degenerating. And there at the end of his prophecy in chapter 9, verse 9, Lo, I will command and will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve. Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. In that day, not a 24-hour period, that time period, in that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof. And I'll raise up the ruins and I'll build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden. Bring again the captivity of my people. <clears throat> All right? And we see he, he's, he's now pointing them to a revived kingdom. In Isaiah, oh, there's so much of Christ in Isaiah. The time would fail. And Oh, the virgin birth there. Yes, all right, well, let's look at that. But let's look first at um, that passage that we looked at uh, not so long ago. Isaiah chapter 11. I think I just quoted it. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, and from Elam, and from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. Now that... uh, the sleepy language of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament's tricky. If you don't know what's going on, you know, your mind can wander. And you can just... 
I remember my friend, good friend, he's a pastor now of a congregation in uh, New Brunswick. <clears throat> he was formerly a pastor in uh, Eugenia, Ontario. And we, we go back nearly 40 years of friendship. And I even remember when we were very young men and we were just sharing, yeah, you know, sometimes reading through the Old Testament like, hmm, wonder what that's all about. You know, you keep reading, hmm, wonder what that's all about, you know. So you read through and so much of it, it does take an acquiring, uh, helps to just keep reading the whole Bible over and over and things start to come together and learning the prophetic language of the Bible and the way the Lord communicates in the Old Testament prophecies. But let's look at a few things that are self-evident here from that. Whether or not you take this literally, I'm not really wanting to get into that dispute with anybody. Some people are looking forward to a literal fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Children actually playing with snakes and so on, as is pointed out here. That's fine. I'm not going to try and dispute that point. But clearly... These are talking about spiritual realities. The kingdom of Messiah is a spiritual kingdom. Jesus said the words I speak are spirit and life. We're talking about the men. Men who are like lions. And we read about some of them in in David's mighty men. A lion-like man who went into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. You know, maybe I'm mixing up two types of people. Lion, Satan walks around as a roaring lion. You got lion-like men that are strong and ferocious and effective in combat. Besides a man who couldn't punch his way out of a wet paper bag. And they were going to dwell together in peace. Children are going to, to, to be safe. Right? You're talking about the kingdom of Christ where there is no harm. Where Christ's people are as harmless as doves. That's really what the prophet has in view. He speaks of Jesus. He shall not um, judge after the sight of his eyes. Right? Oh, I saw that. Just the sight of his eyes. No, he's going to have a full understanding of the facts. The hearing of the heirs. The Lord didn't go off on rumors. I heard thus and such. And now he makes a judgment based on hearsay. That is an unrighteous thing to do. To judge based on hearsay. The Lord didn't do that. With righteousness shall he judge, reprove. This is the kingdom of Messiah. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Branch shall grow out of his roots. This is a seed. This is a kingdom. This is generations after David. Isaiah starts out reproving them. Sinful people from the head to the sole of the foot is corrupt. The nation has degenerated into sin, notwithstanding the righteous kings that uh, were arising in, in uh, Israel, in, in Judah. And here in Christ's kingdom, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb. Not the wolf in sheep's clothing the Lord warmed about. Talking about people in their prior states before regeneration being saved and from every walk of life, the gangster and the Sunday school boy in the kingdom of Christ, they shall not hurt at all. 
my holy mountain. Do you believe that somebody involved in human trafficking can be saved and have a heart of pure love? There's nobody outside the power of Messiah to save. The vilest offender who truly believes. That moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. And a new heart and a new spirit has no appetite for the perverse, monstrous things he used to do. And he's a safe person to have fellowship with. This is what he's talking about. The lion shall lie down with the lamb. The wolf, those that devour sheep. We have more coyotes around here. Farmers like to shoot them. Foxes going after chickens. The prey and the predator. There are people like that. Rich men oppress you. Exploit you. Haul you before the judgment seats, James wrote, and blaspheme the worthy name of Christ. But when they are born again, they're as harmless as lambs. This is the prophet. At a time where there was idolatry, where there was murder, where there was covetousness, deceit, and evil abounding. They had forsaken the law, not only the worship of God. But righteousness, such that when they were having all of their feasts and, and, and ceremony, the Lord said, it stinks because of your wickedness. The ceremony was, was abominable. Here, as unrighteousness is abounding, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Messiah's kingdom is prophesied. <clears throat> the fact in... in, in uh, In chapter 7 of Isaiah, where a sign, the Lord shall give you a sign. I believe it's chapter 7, is that right? Oh, it's chapter 14. No, no, there it is, chapter 7. The Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Read the passage. And of course, it's speaking both in the immediate there was a child born and, and the, the political occurrences that occurred. But it's clearly a promise of Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. There's not a lot of fanfare. It's just a sign. It's just a sign. <clears throat> Matthew takes up on this. This would not have been necessarily as miraculous in their thoughts as it was. Virgin, maiden, young woman. She would, they would have expected, many of them would have interpreted it. She, this would be her firstborn, a young woman, get married, and she'd have a sign, and by this such and such a date. And, and I think it was Rezin and Remaliah and, and so on. He's prophesying. Is that who's going on there? Yeah, Rezin and um, Remaliah. And it's an immediate deliverance that God was was going to deal with in the next few years. But overlaid upon that, as is common in the scripture, was the coming of Messiah. And there would be a miraculous birth. And Matthew takes up on this, which is, and he does it in a typical um, Jewish interpretation. Isaiah (laughs) extolling the kingdom of Jesse. Time goes on. And we, we could walk through all the prophets. The time would fail um, to go through them all. Uh, Micah. We, we must look at Micah. 
Micah prophesying shortly after, after Isaiah, or next in line anyway. Remember uh, Herod's demand in Matthew. We're working from Matthew. I've been there. I haven't read it. So I know I have a lot of scripture. Matthew chapter 2. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. He's already born. Behold there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Saying where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. You understand that the priests in Jerusalem were troubled because... who. Nobody told us. How do we miss it? Herod was troubled because he wanted to be king of the Jews. They were all troubled but for different reasons. He said they should have been excited Messiah's coming. You have to understand how a controlling clergy would work. They need to be in the know. <laughs> Everyone was troubled for different reasons. Micah, here it is. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me he that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. You see, that wasn't quoted in Matthew. They're just saying, where is he going to be born? But Messiah was the eternal one. The promised one. Not only was he promised from the earliest days of creation, his goings forth were from of old. And the, the prophecy is building, building, not only the seed of the woman, not only the seed of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and from the nation of Israel, not only the seed of Jesse, whose kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, not only the stem of Jesse, who shall bring in an age of peace and goodwill, but he is the eternal one who shall be the ruler. You can see God speaking and building the expectation in the hearts of his people. Generation after generation, prophet after prophet. So that the hope of humanity, the, the, the pagans with their various heroes. Even today the atheists and everybody wants a savior. Somebody to end all this mess in the world. But in those days... God building the expectation in his people. Messiah, the king, is coming. When the nation was in turmoil and sin, I'm going to send Jesse. Oh, you don't worry. He's coming. He's coming a long time. Children, you think your dad's five or ten minutes is long. God's little while and it's hundreds of years. He's coming. Micah, the prophets, are speaking on these things. We, the time would fail. Nahum, Habakkuk, they make their references. Jeremiah. What? Jeremiah there. We're, we're, the, the nation's degenerating. Captivity is coming. 
right? Um, you've got the Assyrian army carrying away and Nebuchadnezzar breathing down them at the doors. And Jeremiah makes his prophecy. I think in chapter 33, if I can put my eye on it. There it is. What a ministry. Jeremiah prophesying faithfully over and over. And they all rejected it. The king calls him in. Says, you know, I was afraid. I didn't want to tell anyone. And he pleads with him, just don't tell anyone. And in the end, they completely, years of faithful ministry. And almost nobody obeyed the word of the Lord. Depressing. Behold... Jeremiah 33, 14. The days come, saith the Lord, that I will promise that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safety. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. For thus saith the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Goes on to establish the covenant and the Levitical priesthood, and we can interpret that variously. Establishes, David my servant, I will finish the, the passage, verse 26. <clears throat> I will not, yes, he's, he, he puts it in the negative. If my covenant be not with day and night. In other words, if day and night time stop, that's the only time this prophecy could fail. Then will I cast away the seed of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham. I will cause their captivity to return. Have mercy on them. The nation's about to be destroyed. Carried away captive to Assyria. Nebuchadnezzar is about to come and finish them off. And in the midst of those bleak circumstances. Jeremiah prophesies. Daniel who is already now in captivity. He prophesies. God gives him a dream. God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. I beg your pardon. And Daniel the interpretation. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. Daniel chapter 2. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And he goes on telling him. Thou art this head of gold and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. And he goes through them all. The iron and the clay. And then verse 44, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. That's Nebuchadnezzar. It's a dream. And Daniel interpreting a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Then we look at his visions. Variously. Daniel chapter 11, I believe. No, no, seven, I beg your pardon. I'm pretty sure it's seven, yeah. Yes. Considered the horns and so on. In the first year of Belshazzar. Belshazzar is going to be the end of Babylon. I beheld, verse 9, till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. 
And he describes similar to what John saw in the Lord Jesus. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. In chapter 9, Daniel was praying. He was fasting for, for three weeks and ate no pleasant food. It was a kind of a hybrid fast. Seventy weeks, verse 24, are determined unto, upon thy people and upon thy holy day, holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. God is now telling you when Messiah is coming. By the way, the, and these weeks... They're weeks of years. This is long-established prophetic uh, language. When God pronounced 40 years of judgment on Israel, a, day, a year for a day. They were 40 days spying out the land. They were sinned in unbelief. They got a day for a year. Very common prophetic language throughout the scriptures. And here, 70 weeks. 77-year period. 490 years from the time... In the future, for the going forth of the commandment to build Jerusalem, not build the temples. Very precise. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. This was a time of Nehemiah. And from the going forth of the commandment of the king to authorize Nehemiah to rebuild Jerusalem, 490 years later, Jesus entered. Actually, it's, not, it's, it's the, the 69 and a half weeks later. I beg your pardon. And some have worked it out to the day Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. Messiah the King. Thy King cometh unto thee lowly, meek, sitting upon an ass. God working to a timetable. Building here, telling them now the time such that at the time of Christ, everybody expected Messiah to appear. There were false messiahs and they were successful because everyone was expecting them to appear. And with the rejection of Jesus and the failure of the false messiahs and the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years after the resurrection. And when it became clear to the Jews that their specific messianic expectations were not going to happen. A king after their likeness, after their expectation. They pronounced a curse on anyone that would try and calculate the time. Cursed. Because they missed their Messiah. The time would fail. You have Daniel there. Ezekiel in chapter 37. Oh dear. We're out of time. We did start a little late. Ezekiel chapter 37. We're used to the, um, the, uh, 
valley of dry bones in chapter 37. But at the end, he's prophesying, I'll make them one nation in verse 22. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, verse 33. Verse 24, and David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And David, and my servant David, shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. Verse 27, my tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify them. During the captivity, right up to the captivity and during it, Jeremiah prophesying. A stem out of David. Daniel revealing not only to his fellow Jews there, but to the Eastern Empire. This is why I believe it was the students of Daniel that would have alerted the, um, given the information and the expectation of a star foretelling Messiah. Daniel prophesying, Messiah is coming. Jeremiah in the midst of Jerusalem is going to fall, prophesying Messiah is coming. Ezekiel prophesying Messiah is coming. This is the darkest time in the nation of Israel. When they're carried out, wiped out, carried out of their, out of their kingdom. And God is saying, I'm going to establish an everlasting kingdom. Brethren, God is not changed. When it looks completely hopeless, God's word shall prevail. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and forever, when a man sent to him, my little daughter lieth at the point of death, and said, I will come and heal. And on the way, thy daughter is dead, why troublest thou the master any further? And Jesus says, be not afraid, only believe. He's still the same. Whatever promise God has made, he shall fulfill, but we're focused on Messiah. After the captivity... It was restored on the preaching of Haggai and, uh, and Zechariah, the rebuilding of the temple. The last of the, uh, the Old Testament prophets would have been Malachi. I think in, in Haggai chapter 2, I believe it's there. It's, it's yet once a little while, chapter 2, verse 6. And I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. It's a prophesying of the times of Christ. His contemporary Zechariah in chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon the foal of an ass. This is during the time of the rebuilding of the temple. Shortly afterwards, when the people are, are again backslidden in their service, Malachi, right? Ezra now is compiling the scriptures. Malachi is the last of the prophets. Ezra will collate them all. Malachi um, prophesies. 
Chapter 3, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare thy way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Describes the ministry of Jesus. Who shall abide the day of his coming? He's going to refine them with fire and his words and so on. Then he he warns them. I will send. Behold I send you Elijah the prophet. Chapter 4. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers. And with all of these scriptures now collated. And we heard about it with Sean's teaching. And distributed throughout the land in the synagogues for the next several hundred years. And then through the scattering of the diaspora after it's translated into Greek. Expounded week by week, year by year. Coming. The promised Messiah is coming. Can you imagine? In your lifetime, hoping and nothing much changes. You live through the Antiochus Epiphanes ravages and the Maccabean revolt and the restoration there. Hoping, is this going to be the messianic age? And it too dwindles back to normalcy. Generation after generation of nothingness. The Romans conquer and they're under Roman occupation. And everything's established. Herod builds this glorious temple. And the the rabbi's teaching, this time is fulfilled. Look, we're in the days of Messiah. Look at Daniel's prophecy. This is it. Much like what's going on with these people in their end times newsletters. That same idea, only they weren't profiteering on it so much then. They built an expectation. We are in the days of Messiah. Messiah will come in our lifetime. And I ask you with that build up of the expectation all through the prophets. Is it not clear that it is the man Christ Jesus, not the babe of Bethlehem that was in expectation in people's hearts. It was the king in his glory, not the babe in a manger that God was directing our attention to. The birth was a means to an end. Let's go into the New Testament, uh, shall we? As we start, you know, Matthew, and he talks about the birth of Jesus and the, the uh, Magi, the wise men. <clears throat> you know, David's dream, uh, sorry, Joseph's dream and Mary's conception. And Luke, you know, Luke talks about the shepherds and so on. You know, brethren, but let us understand what's going on. Look, Luke tells us, many have told us these things. And I'm going to... Share as well, because I've searched them out. I've had perfect understanding. And he starts with Zacharias. Both righteous, childless, the vision to Zachariah, And then the baby. And then later, Mary. And then Jesus is born. And, you know, and Zacharias, um, John the Baptist was in the deserts till his showing unto Israel. And, and Jesus was there. And then at 12, he was in the temple. And then, you know, at 30, he... During, um, during this time when uh, Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests and Pontius Pilate and Herod. And, and then the word of God came unto John in the wilderness. Do you see how incidental the birth of Jesus was comparatively? That it's one item in a move towards a kingdom. Say, so, well, the angels were there. Yes, of course. To shepherds. It wasn't pomp and ceremony. It was some obscure shepherds in the field. 
Some would say that, uh, anyway, we won't get distract ourselves, we're already over time on that, or fill in that detail. Read the narrative without the Christmas eggnog, jingle, tinsel, cuddle, fireplace, chestnut thing. Read the narrative and see that Luke is just going this and this and this and this. And that the, the focus... Matthew, he's showing the fulfillment of prophecy. Look, look how Mark puts it. All right, The focus is on the kingdom of Messiah. Mark says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy, thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. John did baptize. That's where Mark starts. Not interested. He's not even going to bother with the baby. There's no time for that. Let's get right to the point. That's Mark. Mark wouldn't have been having a manger scene and a crash and and all of that other stuff. Look, Look how John puts it. This is the thing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Came unto his own, his own received him not. It goes on about new birth. Verse 14 He's repeating now. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. This is the thing. The birth was a means to an end. Of course it was announced. Of course. It wasn't a thing in itself. The nativity scene. There are historical facts to verify. There are historical details to verify the fact of the matter, but nothing more. God wasn't creating a, a, a celebration that would have all of these trappings, and people missed the point. How, I ask, how can you be celebrating the entrance into the world of Messiah the King with an indulgence of excess of food and drink? This child who set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. This one who was born to suffer and die. Who said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross. And let him deny himself and take up his cross. How can we be having carousing and, and, and feastings and carryings on. To commemorate the coming of Messiah into the world got nothing to do with it and this is the tragedy tragedy of the thing it's not about the nativity it's not Christmas it's the incarnation happened let's go with it for a moment What's a, let's, let's, let's take all of the feast days the holidays and some, some of you, you know, from a traditional background old colony have holidays I think what's the greatest Christian holiday this will tell the proof of us any brave students Let's suppose Easter. Easter. You are saying, what is? What is? 
But no, 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 let's pretend they're all true. Let's pretend they're all legit. What's the greatest? Easter? Resurrection. Resurrection. But which is it in practice? It's Christmas. This tells us something fundamentally wrong. Look, even Solomon wrote this. Obscure passage. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. And again, uh, verse 8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. You read it. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. The end is better than the beginning, better the day of one's death than one's birth. That is simply like Paul talking, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Hmm? How is it, brethren, if we are going to have a celebration, he is risen. Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. Joy to the world. Amen. But the, 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 the real celebration began with, it is finished. Because one failure before that moment would have meant the birth was for nothing. He came for a spiritual kingdom. There were no second chances. There would have been no regrouping. No, you know, he's not come to throw off the Romans. He came to throw off sin and Satan. And it must be a spotless sacrifice. You know, there are many... Um, Jews who believe there's going to be a third temple rebuilt and they are preparing. They've got vestments, they've got vessels and they keep trying to get a red heifer for the ashes. And they've had them before but they found one discolored hair and the whole heifer had to be discarded. This is how thorough the inspection is. The red heifer. One wrong colored hair. This isn't the red heifer. And they keep trying to breathe it. The life of Jesus, if there had been one wrong thought in the man Christ Jesus, the redemption of humanity would have been impossible. His death was far better than his birth in what it accomplished for mankind. Now I would submit to us that the, this calendar day however accurate or inaccurate it is that instead of feasting and merrymaking and expensive gifts and tinsel and laurel wreaths all of which were pagan practices before uh, Christ's name was attached to them have nothing to do and let us hold forth Christ to the world Isaiah and we're well out of time now would tell us you know about the fast that God has chosen to undo every yoke, right? To loose the oppressed. Jesus told us that in gift giving, give not to your friends nor your rich neighbors, but to the poor and the needy. And if anyone is going to have a feast, let him call the poor. If anyone is going to give gifts, let him give to the homeless. And let us talk about the gift of God to the world and why that should be limited to the 25th of December. I can think of no good reason. 
If we are going to have holidays, let them be Christian holidays. Filled with good works and giving to those who cannot recompense. Drawing out our souls to the needy, not selfishly clustering in our own cozy fellowships. Announcing to the world, Messiah the King. Some of those hymns are great. Others are syrupy sentiment that hinder spiritual development because they feel so good while they have nothing of the Spirit of God in them. Paul makes simply that Christ was made of a woman. How is it that none of the apostles went on at all about the nativity, but they preached Christ crucified? Galatians 4, I believe, Paul said, God, in the fullness of time, and we'll close, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. I believe that's how it is. Verse 4 of chapter 4. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. The New Testament writers go on and on and on about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And there's one passing comment about his birth. Because the act of his being born was not the significant thing. It was that the word was made flesh. The celebration of the Christian is the incarnation, not the nativity. It's that God dwelled with us. And I would, I would contend that the, one of the proofs of that, apart from the buildup that we see through the scriptures, is the fact that the resurrection, the day of Christ's resurrection is clear in scripture. And one has to hire the absolute best lawyers to try and make a case for identifying the day of his birth. And this is by the design of God who has focused our attention on the life of the man Jesus. I don't want to rain on anyone's parade and I certainly don't suggest that we go to family gatherings and start um, disabusing them of the misguided notions that people have concerning Christmas. But I would entreat, today and every day, let us be disciples of the Lord. Let us be part of his kingdom, where the wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The lion shall lie down with the lamb. Where there shall be, they shall not hurt at all in my holy mountain. Where we celebrate his kingship, his lordship. And we labor and look for the day when he shall be fully, visibly revealed. As many attendants as possible. Sons and daughters born to the living God. The desire of nations. The anticipated Messiah. The King of kings. Lord of lords. Came into the world. Died. For our sins was risen again, rose from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he reigns in his kingdom, Messiah the King. The date of his humanity 
is obscured in Scripture. The fact of his kingship. The psalmist, whom we didn't look at, wrote of it. We're out of time. You could look at it. Psalm, Psalm 2 speaks of Messiah the King. Psalm 45, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Psalm 72, give to the king thy judgments, O Lord. Three glorious psalms, David writing about Messiah the king. This is the one whom we worship and celebrate. The king of kings was made flesh, dwelt among us. The word incarnate. We worship creator, a risen savior, not a babe in a manger. Let's pray.